Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 26, verses 26 uh, through 29. Hear now the word of our God. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would give us all a single-minded resolve to, to know nothing in our midst except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it would not be in lofty speech or wisdom that we would take refuge or find our hope or be interested in, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And by the same power that your son raised Lazarus from the dead, we pray that you would now wield your life-giving power to raise the dead by the voice of the Son of God and join those who are dead in their sins to the living, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, come, feed your sheep, and save them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, uh, to be human is to be hungry and thirsty. Uh, To live uh, with longings, that are larger than this age, to have an appetite that is so vast and a thirst that is so vast that if you and I were able, if this were possible, if, if it were possible for us to swallow the entire universe in a single bite, not only would we discover that our hunger had not been satisfied, but we would discover that it had been intensified. Because then we would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that that the thing we are looking for, that the answer for our hunger, that the answer for our thirst will not be found within the four walls of this universe, but must be brought into this universe from beyond the walls of the universe into the world to be given to us. And I'm not talking about the hunger of our stomachs. I'm talking about the hunger that is beneath every other hunger, the hunger and thirst that beget all our other hungers and all our other thirsts. I'm talking about the hunger for God. I'm talking about the hunger for which there is by design only a single satisfaction and it is nothing short of the living God himself. That is why we exist. 
So this morning I was reading Psalm 63 and just reminded again, David prays, oh God, you are my God. I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. Friends, that's why we exist. That is the hunger beneath every other hunger, the thirst beneath every other thirst that defines our life. It is the hunger for God. And that's what brings us to the third cup that Jesus uses in Matthew 26 to describe or to take the measure of his cross's magnitude. He uses, this is the cup we will share with Jesus. It's the only one of the three that we will share with Jesus. And Jesus uses this third cup, which he describes in verse 29, to describe the day when he will purchase or to describe the day that he purchases. I guess that's a way to say it. To describe, he uses that cup to describe the day that he purchases on the cross, the day when all our hunger and all our thirst will come to an end forever, and our satisfaction will begin forever. That's what Jesus is describing with this third cup. And there are three promises about that day. that I want to think with you about this morning as we prepare for the Lord's table. The first promise that Jesus makes to us from verse 29 about that day is that the world will be new. You notice how newness is what he's emphasizing in verse 29. Newness. I will drink it, or when I drink it new, with you in my Father's kingdom. He promises us that the world will be new. He promises us, secondly, that we will be new. And thirdly, he's promising us that the joy of that day will be both ancient and new. So let's look first at the the theme of the world being made new. The world will be new. And although Jesus doesn't use the word cup in verse 29, I know some of you are scratching your head and saying, where is that in verse 29? Well, he doesn't use the word cup, but that's certainly what he's describing. Look at verse 29 again with me. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, he's got a cup in mind, a very different cup from the other two that we've been thinking about, the cup that he drank alone on the cross and received from his Father, the cup we received from Jesus um, from the cross, which is what we thought about last week. Now he's just hours before he's going to go to the cross and drink the cup of God's wrath alone. He has his mind on another cup, doesn't he? He has his mind on a very different day. His mind is fixed on to a very different day when he will drink from a very different cup, a very different wine, and he will not be alone. He will be with his people and he'll be with them in a brand new world. That's what he's thinking about, what his heart and mind are filled with as he goes to the cross. Where's the new world, you say? Well, where is Jesus? Let me ask you a couple questions. Where is Jesus, in, in, according to Jesus' mental picture, where is he when he is going to be, where will he be when he is drinking that wine new with his people in his Father's kingdom? 
He'll be in his father's kingdom. Okay, you got that part. Where's his father's kingdom? Is it a heavenly kingdom? Or is it an earthly kingdom? Which is it, Emmanuel? Yes. Think about it, friends. Where, where do vines grow? They grow on the earth. They grow on the earth in dirt. Jesus is not talking about opening. Uh, he's not talking about a day when he'll be in heaven and he'll open a souvenir bottle of earth's finest vintage in heaven with his people. He's talking about a day when he will be here in his father's kingdom and eating and drinking from the fruit of the vines that grow in the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, his father's kingdom is both heavenly and earthly. It's what he has trained us to pray. It's the vision that he has taught us from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 to align our hearts with the day. What do we pray? We, we don't pray, may we go to your kingdom. We pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not just an intermediate petition. That is the ultimate goal is that God would come in all of his fullness. That's the picture in Revelation 21, right? Where, where John sees the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. This is the merger of heaven and earth, my friends. And Jesus is describing that day when the world will be new. Friends, this is the day when the wine will be new, because the world will be new. This is the day. The day that Jesus is describing here in verse 29 is the same day that Paul describes in Romans 8. And I invite you to turn with me to Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. And it's on page 944 in your pew Bible. Oh, it's so important to have these things in view because we suffer now in the world. And Paul uh, offers us very profound pastoral comfort. Starting at verse 18, notice this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. Now notice verse 19. Notice what he says next. For the creation waits. The creation is waiting right now. Waits with, for what? It waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Wait a second. What do you mean creation waits with eager longing? It's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation, Paul is saying, is waiting for the glorification of the sons and daughters of God for the day when Jesus returns and he will, by, by, he will take the body of our humble state and bring it into conformity with the body of his glory by the exercise and exertion of the very same power that he has even to subject all things to himself, Philippians 3.21. And notice, creation knows that, according to Paul. Where did creation learn that? It learned it in Genesis 3. Creation heard the promise of God 
in the curse that he inflicted on the serpent that he would, despite all that the serpent had accomplished, would raise up from the woman a seed one day who would crush the serpent's head. Creation heard that promise. Creation has cherished that promise, Paul is saying, since Genesis 3. You know, friends, sometimes the rocks and the trees know more truth than we do. For the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God has a plan for when when man falls, creation is subjected. Creation, which he was charged with stewarding, goes down with him under the judgment of God. But but as, as, as man and the creation that he was entrusted with stewardship authority over and responsibility for, as that goes down, it goes, they both go down with the promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. So there is hope that will be brought to pass by the power of God. Because one day, the creation itself, verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the day Jesus is describing, my friends. That's the day you were made for. That's the day those in Christ have been redeemed for. When all creation will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's not that the creation will be changed first and then we will benefit from that. Notice the the order is that the children of God are changed and creation follows. Friends, verse 22, for we know now, right, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Until now. Those are painful. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Christians grown inwardly. Non-Christians, you don't groan. You don't groan for this. You groan because life is hard. You don't groan because you have hope. You could. You could. Your groanings could be changed to the groanings of hope, not despair. Because today, Jesus Christ is present in power by His Spirit. His cross is still sufficient to save any and all who come to Him. Your groanings could be changed on this day by the grace of God into the groanings of longing and hope for a future so beautiful it has never entered the mind of man even to conceive. But you must come to Christ. And not play games with him. God is not playing games with you. He's not playing games with the world, my friends. Pains of childbirth, right? That's the the macrocosm, right? This is beautiful. Pains of childbirth are hard and they're painful, but what happens? They give rise to new life. And the first fruits of the harvest are the guarantee of the full harvest, Paul is reminding us of the very, he's giving us more detail than Jesus gives us in verse 29, but he's giving us the same detail. The day is coming, my friends, when we will reap with our Lord the great harvest of the new heavens and the new earth that he purchased for his people at the cross. The world will be new because Jesus has purchased that new world for us. 
and only righteousness will dwell there. Friends, this vision that Jesus, if you go back to Matthew 26, it's so important to see this, you know, because the vision that Jesus is setting out of a new world is neither, there are kind of two tendencies that men have. When, when, you, when you think about the present world and its pain and its suffering and its difficulties, there's two extreme uh, visions that men tend to have, right? The man-made responses to um, the sufferings of this present time, and they're both contrary to the gospel. So I want to distinguish the vision that Jesus is casting and that his apostle Paul is casting in Romans 8. I want to distinguish this biblical vision from the unbiblical, man-made visions of both utopia and nostalgia. Right? You've heard the word utopia. Utopia means literally good place. And you know what utopianism is? Utopianism is that man looks at the present, looks at the pain, looks at what's wrong with the present. And there is a lot that's wrong. If you don't think that there is a lot that's wrong with the present, take your blinders off. It's true outside of you. It's true inside of you. But man looks at what's wrong with the present and then resolves through his own power and his own wisdom and his own exertions, right, to bring, to bring good into the world, that, 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 to fix what's wrong with the world by the good that men can make in the world. That's what utopianism is. And that's not the gospel. Because men don't achieve the future, my friends. Men, according to Jesus' vision, according to the Bible's vision, receive the future. It is the gift of God. It is the achievement of Jesus Christ for the world. But the other extreme, and very few Christians are utopianists. I don't think that was a word, but it just happened. Nostalgia, I think, is a much more significant temptation for people who are Christians. Nostalgia works in the other direction, right? Unlike utopianism, nostalgia, uh, utopianism looks forward and says, hey, there's a future. We can make the future better by our own exertions and our own wisdom and our own power. Nostalgia says, you know, the present is so bad, it was better in the past. Nostalgia looks backwards. That's... You know, friends, that is just as contrary to the gospel as utopianism is. God never sends his people back. God never sends his people back to a bygone era. God's people frequently in the scriptures long for a bygone era, but they imagine in their minds that the past or some season in the past was good enough or better than the present. It's not true. The, the story of redemption, my friends, is not a U-turn. God never takes his people back. He's taking them forward. Sometimes people will say that the story of the Bible is that God is bringing his people back to the garden. That's, that's a lie. That is not true. The end of the Bible is not Eden. Eden is not good enough. 
What Jesus purchased, my friends, is something better than paradise before the fall. Because in paradise before the fall, guess what? Adam and Eve could sin. There were enemies of Adam and Eve, even in paradise. Yes, that's mysterious. But friends, going back to Eden is not why Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again to buy us a place in a place that was not perfect. The end of the Bible is a garden city, something in which the whole, the whole world has been transformed now. The whole world is the Holy of Holies. So friends, don't settle in your mind for anything less than the great future that Jesus has purchased by his blood. And it is neither utopianism, nor is it nostalgia. God is moving us forward. This is something far better and far beyond Eden. This is the new world that Jesus is promising us in verse 29. Oh, May it come quickly. But secondly, Jesus, has pro- Jesus promises us that not only will the world be new, but we will be new. On the day, my friends, when the wine is new, because the world is new, we will also be new. And when I say we, I need to be very careful here. I am talking about those who are in Jesus Christ. So this, when I say we in this whole section... I, I want you, if you're a non-Christian, to know, and it's not, because I, it's not because I intend to be mean. I just want you to have clarity. The Bible is not a bunch of squishy, round edges that you can't tell where the boundaries are. The Bible, because God is not that way. You need to know where the line is. And if you're not in Christ, none of the promises that I'm talking about are yours right now. But they can be. They can be. They're right here. They're more real and more present to you and more concrete even than the elements you see on this table. And so it's not the willingness of God that is the limitation here. It's your willingness. The only limitation, the only thing standing between you as a non-Christian and the promises I'm about to describe are your own will. It's your own will, not God's. So come. This is not a game. This is the most serious moment in your life. Because right now, Jesus Christ is standing forth from his word, confronting you, presenting you, summoning you to himself. He did not bring you here so you could enjoy a leisurely intellectual stroll through the valleys and mountains of his truth. He called you here so that you might be rescued by him. So brothers and sisters, now I turn to you. And it's amazing to think that at the very same time that Jesus is turning his face like flint toward his immediate, his immediate future on the cross where he, as the suffering servant, is going to be marred more than any man. He's going to be, he's going to be so hideously deformed 
on the cross and people are going to mock him. He's going to be a byword. He's, he's going to be, people are not going to want to look at him, right? Uh, Isaiah says he will be marred more than any man, Isaiah 52, 14, right? When he is made sin on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he will be the ugliest and most deformed human being who has ever lived. And at the very moment when he is poised to endure that, he is thinking again about a day, a different day, the ultimate future that he is going to the cross to purchase for his people. And it will be a future in which we, all who are in Christ, will be finally and fully and eternally beautiful. We will be made new. how important it is for, for us to depend upon God's grace now so that, so that he would give us grace so that our imaginations could, could take flight now on the gospel so that we could soar, our hearts could soar on the wings of the gospel to that very day that he's describing, that day when we will be made new. Because, you know, earlier in his gospel, in in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has promised in chapter 13, he said, the righteous will shine like the sun, like the S-U-N in the kingdom of their father. This is the same day. And we will shine. Think about it, friends. Let your imaginations be carried away on the wings of the gospel because this is what Jesus has purchased. This is what he promises to all who trust in him, that you will shine like the sun on that day in the kingdom of your Father because you will shine like the S-O-N on that day. You will shine like Jesus. Friends, Jesus Christ is the definition of human beauty. He is the true image of God, Ephesians 4.24 and Colossians 3.10. He is the gold standard of human beauty. That's what glorification is. If you think about glorification as simply some abstract amount of holiness that you get in full measure on the day that Jesus returns or the day you enter the presence of the Lord, you don't get it. God's plan is not simply that you would be glorified. What's the definition of glorification? I'll tell you what the definition of glorification is. That you would be conformed perfectly to the image of his son who is himself the image of God. The ultimate human. The truest, most beautiful, fullest human. That, if you are in Christ, is your God-appointed Christ-purchased destiny. That you'll be like him. And isn't that exactly what you long for, brothers and sisters? Oh, friends, is that not what you long for? More than anything else, to be like him. Yes, of course, you want temptations to end. Amen. You want to be freed from your proclivities to sin, do you not? You want to be liberated from your capacities and your abilities to sin, do you not? You want all the vulnerabilities to sin to go away. But why? Why do you want those things? Why do you long for those things? Why? Is it simply so that your shame would be eradicated? Is it simply so that your disappointment in yourself 
would come to an end? Is it simply so that your struggles would end? No, friends, not if you're a Christian. You want, you want the day to come when you will no longer have the ability to sin. You want the day to come when you will no longer be susceptible to temptation. You want the day to come when your sanctification has been superseded by your glorification. You want that day to come because you know above all else that what that day will mean is that at last, fully and finally and eternally, you will be like him whom you love most. We are children of God now. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Oh, do you not love His wisdom? Do you not want His wisdom? Do you not want to be conformed to His gentleness? Oh, friends, my brothers and sisters, do you not love his zeal for truth? Do you not want to be fully conformed to his zeal for truth? Do you not love his patience? Do you not love his faithfulness? And do you not want to be fully conformed to those things? Because he is the loveliest one you've ever known. He's the one you admire the most. What greater destiny could God possibly bestow upon you? And my Christian brothers and sisters, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is no greater destiny that God could bestow on you than perfect conformity to his son forever. Because on that day, you will at last, at last, be fully human for the first time. You know, today, sin is so familiar to us that we drink it down like it was water. But on the day that Jesus is describing, my friends, that great day, holiness and only holiness will be our meat and drink. On that day, we will fast eternally from sin. And we will feast forever on holiness, on conformity to Jesus Christ. Today, we behold him as in a mirror, right, dimly, and we're transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. Today is a matter of only degrees, but the day is coming, the day of deluge is coming, my friends, when all at once and suddenly we will be changed because we will see him as he is. There will be no trace, there will be no scar of sin on us, there will be no remaining weakness. We'll be completely renewed according to the image of God. Or mind will be renewed our body will be renewed our faculties and abilities and capabilities will be renewed we will have new eyes and a new heart forever and there will only be one only one in heaven in the new heavens and the new earth will have who will have any wounds and it will be the lamb and his wounds, his five wounds, which he will bear forever, they will stand as glorious witnesses. They're going to testify to us. Those five wounds are going to testify to us forever that the price of our glorification, oh, I want you to feel this. 
You're going to forever, you're going to spend your life beholding the lamb standing as if slain, which means that he's going to bear obviously fatal wounds. That's what that means. Standing as if slain. You look at him, he's alive, he's raised, but he's obviously wounded. He shouldn't be alive. And for all eternity, you're going to gaze on that lamb. And every one of those wounds is going to remind you. It's going to be the wonder of wonders that the price for everything that you enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth, everything that you receive, all your fellowship with God, all your glorification, that the price of all of those eternal blessings, which Jesus was gladly, the price of your beauty, which Jesus was glad to pay, was his ugliness. His deformity and his condemnation at Calvary. And we will never forget it. So the world will be new. And will be new. And then the joy of that day will be both ancient and new. I, I had to say it in a way that was going to get your attention, and I know you think I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth again, but I'm not. That joy on that day will be both ancient and new. Let me explain what I mean. First, it's going to be ancient. And what I mean by that is that long before we arrive. Oh, that's so important to see. Friends, there is joy in heaven now. There has been joy in the presence of God from before the foundation of the world. Before there was ever a universe, God was joy. <laughs> right? And history is not a disappointment to God. History is not a sparring partner for God that he has to somehow wrestle to the ground until he cries uncle so that he can have his way. God's joy is inextinguishable. And when we are brought to that day, we will be brought into a day where the joy has been ancient. We will not be the center of that joy, my friends. We will be welcomed into the center of it. For all eternity. Because the heart of God, my friends, has it composed, the heart of God composed and began to sing the music of the gospel before there was ever a universe. Titus 1, 2, right? This is the most ancient of all music. It begins in the heart of God. And Titus 1-2 says that the gospel was God's promise to God before it ever became God's promise to men. Paul describes it as the hope of eternal life. Titus 1-2, the hope of eternal life, listen to this, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, literally promised before ages eternal. Well, promised to who? God. That's whom? Do you know what that means? That means that, that from before the foundation of the world, God was already boasting, the heart of God was already boasting in the cross. Before the foundation of the world, the heart of God had already decided to know nothing in the cosmos he would create except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
That God would declare that. Why does Paul declare it? Because in 1 Corinthians, because that has been the heart of God's resolve from before the foundation of the world. That the Lamb would be exalted. That every knee would bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That has been the resolve. This is an ancient joy, my friends that you and I are going to enter into, as ancient as God himself, which is why Revelation 13, 8 refers to the title of a book that was written before the foundation of the world. And here's the title of the book. The book of life. This book was written. Now, you got to see, you got to get this. The, the book was written before the foundation of the world, my friends. What's the title of the book? According... To Revelation 13, the title of the book is this, The Book of Life of the Lamb That Was Slain. Oh, this is an ancient joy that has gone back, 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 back before there was a world. God's purpose, God's joy in redeeming a people unto himself through the Lord Jesus. So on that great day, we're going to be welcomed into the center of this ancient joy, but we will not be its cause. We're going to be right in the center of God's joy. And you know, it's very interesting. God's joy, God's joy always makes room for others. I was, again, I was in in Luke 15 this morning and it struck me that as Jesus is teaching about the joy in heaven, he uses two illustrations. He uses the image first of the shepherd who goes, well, I'll just talk about the shepherd. The shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep, right? And then once he's found the lost sheep, he brings him back and he's not content, right? He's not content to just be joyful himself. He says to his friends and neighbors, the text says, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. You see, that is what God's God's joy is like that. He invites us into it. And that's the picture that Jesus is describing in verse 29, my friends. There is an ancient joy in what it means to belong to Jesus Christ and what it will mean to be brought to that great day of his return, right? When the new heavens and the new earth will be brought is that we will be ushered into the very center of that joy. God will make room for us. But my friends, if you're not a Christian, you need to not be passive. Just a couple chapters earlier in Luke, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive, literally agonize to enter through, literally agonize to enter through the narrow door. God is ready. He has made room for you to join him in his joy. Agonize, strive to enter in there because you know the day is coming when that door is going to close. It will either close, it'll close on the earlier of either your death or Jesus' return. And if you have not entered before either of those events, that door will be closed forever and you will be unable to open it agonize to enter through the narrow door but the joy is not only going to be ancient my friends it's going to be new new what do i mean look again at what jesus says in verse 29 i tell you i will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That is just absolutely staggering. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, he knows full well, right, that he is going to, after his, after his crucifixion, he's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to exit the tomb. He's going to stay on earth for 40 days. And then he's going to ascend to the Father's right hand where he will be exalted where he will sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high, where he will be given the name that is above every other name, where all things will be placed in subjection under his feet. And he knows that he will be there reigning in glory, possessing all authority in heaven and on earth until the day of his return. He knows all that, and yet he is saying in verse 29 that even in that position of glory, he is going to fast. He's going to fast from the fruit of the vine. His joy is going to be incomplete until this day. Now, what is it? What is it about that day? Why would his joy be incomplete? Why would he fast? And why would he not break that fast? Until that day, well, I think these words in verse 29, with you, hold the key. Until that day when I drink it new with you. You see what's going on here, friends? In everlasting covenant love, Jesus has bound his joy to his bride's joy. He has knit his heart. We are one flesh with him. He is, he's obeying his own command in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. He's saying, friends, that he's going to wait for us. He's going to wait for us until that day. He's holding fast. Until that day, he's holding fast to his father's promise from Isaiah 53, right? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. And until every one of his people is brought safely into his heavenly kingdom, until the new heavens and the new earth that he purchased are brought to earth and the prayer that he taught us to pray is fully answered, he will not be satisfied until then. Until that day, my friends, he's holding fast to his promise that he made to his disciples. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back to take you, to bring you to be with me where I am. Until that day, he is waiting, holding fast in hope to his father's answer to his prayer in John 17. Father, I want them to see, I want them to see my glory that I had from before the foundation of the world. I want them to be with me where I am. All those things Jesus is cherishing and holding fast, friends. He's going to wait for us. Oh, what a savior. What a savior we've been given. Friends, this Jesus is preparing a feast for us that will never end. And it's a feast that he purchases at Calvary by his death. He, the day is coming when he will swallow up death with his victory. He began to do that at Calvary, didn't he? 
It looked like death was swallowing him, didn't it? He gave himself, this is the king of glory, my friends, who gave himself to be swallowed up, apparently, by death. That's how he defeated death. By letting himself be swallowed by all the consequences of the sins of his people, all the hostility of sin against them. It was like he descended, he was caught in the black hole, willingly, freely caught in the black hole of the consequences of our disobedience against God. He let himself be caught in that orbit as our substitute, and he bore the judgment of the darkness that we had earned by our sin. He let himself be swallowed up by death, and then in the very heart of that darkness because it was impossible for death to hold him because he holds his priesthood by the power of an indestructible life he said from the very heart of that darkness let there be light and destroy death so now we live in his victory and the cup that he describes in verse 29 my friends is just another picture of what he achieved on the cross. Oh, friends, the day is coming and it will soon be upon us when the sons and the daughters of God are going to be revealed and the whole cosmos is going to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Will you be among their number? God has drawn near to you today. He has brought the truth of the gospel to you today. He has declared his readiness and willingness that you would enter in. Will you enter in? Because, you know, on that day, for those who do enter in, right, on that day, the sons and daughters of God are going to sit down to a banquet face-to-face with the champion who ransomed them. Face-to-face. And we will lift our glasses to our king And our laughter will be loud and long and the joy will never end. That's the day that Jesus is picturing. You know, J.R. Tolkien, to paraphrase Tolkien, Tolkien says, that's the day when everything sad comes untrue. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, that's going to be the day when we realize that all our suffering, those of us who are in Christ, all our suffering, and all of our struggles and adventures, all the good and all the hard things in this life have been just the cover and the title page. Just the cover and the title page of the story that no one on earth has ever read. Chapter one of that story, which goes on forever and ever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Lord, you've prepared the room. Now please cause us to enter in. We pray in your name.